From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Don Gagne. The Justice Department unveils a damning assessment of abuses by police in Minneapolis three years after the murder of George Floyd. Medicare ends for millions as COVID-era guarantees of coverage are lifted. Also, honky-tonks and pedal steel. Country singer Brennan Lee finds inspiration for her new album. I played my first gig when I was 14 years old in a bar, so they feel like home to me. The certain type that has, you know, a good jukebox and light on the TVs, heavy on the soul and kind of the local flavor. And Ron Elving on another monumental week in politics. First, our newscast. It's Saturday, June 17th, 2023. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. President Biden will make a stop in the key swing state of Pennsylvania today. The president will hold his first official campaign rally since announcing his bid for re-election. NPR's Tamara Keith reports Biden is expected to make another pitch for his economic agenda during a rally with union workers in Philadelphia. The Philadelphia event is being described as a unity rally by the labor unions that are organizing it. And it will feature unions that don't always move in lockstep, but have all decided to endorse Biden's re-election early. Biden-Harris 2024 campaign manager Julie Chavez-Rodriguez. He's going to be able to join a whole coalition of labor unions that are going to come out in their support for him and just really full-throated support. That unions would come out in support of the Democratic president isn't exactly surprising. But these earlier-than-usual endorsements mean the union's considerable political operations can start being mobilized to help the re-election effort. Tamara Keith, NPR News. Secretary of State Antony Blinken will travel to China this weekend. NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports Blinken, who will become the highest-ranking Biden administration official to visit Beijing, will try to improve relations between the two countries during his visit. Both sides have played down expectations for the visit. Secretary Blinken says he's looking for any areas where the U.S. and China can cooperate and to find ways to manage their vast differences. Intense competition requires sustained diplomacy to ensure that competition does not veer into confrontation or conflict. Before leaving, he met with his counterpart from Singapore, who says Blinken's trip is necessary but not sufficient. Foreign Minister Vivian Balakrishnan says the rest of the world wants to see some kind of modus vivendi, a peaceful coexistence between the two largest economies in the world. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. President Biden has named a new director to lead the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. NPR's Ping Huang reports. Dr. Mandy Cohen served as North Carolina's health secretary during the pandemic. One of the biggest challenges she'll face is restoring the agency's credibility with the public. Last month, as a commencement speaker for Guilford College, Cohen focused her speech on trust. Trust in institutions such as government has been eroding in recent years. This lack of trust has led to polarization, to division, and it's made it hard to solve important issues facing the world. Cohen is tasked with rebuilding the agency and advocating for its funding and powers to Congress at a time of budget restrictions and open animosity towards the CDC. Ping Huang, NPR News. This is NPR News in Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. 
loved ones of people who donated their bodies to Harvard Medical School say they are in grief over the allegations that the morgue manager sold off body parts. Some are joining a class action lawsuit. Cedric Lodge, his wife, and several others are facing federal charges as part of what prosecutors call a nationwide network of body parts trafficking. WBUR's Ali Jarmanning spoke to some of the families and has this report. Laura St. Georgie says this week's news has reignited her grief for her mother, who died six years ago at age 87. She's angry at the people accused of these crimes and at Harvard Medical School. We trusted them. And I know that this kind of thing is not something that anybody would anticipate, because why on earth would you? But it's just, it's just so horrifying. Harvard officials and federal prosecutors say they're working to determine those who may have been affected by the alleged thefts. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Allie Jarmanning. A spokesperson for the Suffolk County DA's office says a DA's office official has been placed on administrative leave while the office investigates his alleged anti-Semitic comments. The office's director of community engagement, Trucy Allah, is accused of making several anti-Semitic comments on social media and in a podcast. Service on the MBTA's Green Line extension is being disrupted this weekend. Today and tomorrow, shuttle buses are replacing trains on both branches between Government Center and Union Square and between Government Center and Medford Tufts. The T says this will allow crews to work along the Lechmere Viaduct. It is day two of the Reset Music Festival at the new venue at Suffolk Downs. Today's lineup includes LCD Sound System, Jamie XX, Idols, and Lorraine. Tomorrow's sold-out show features supergroup Boy Genius as headliners. Last night, the Red Sox beat the Yankees 15-5. They play again tonight. Tonight at Gillette, the Revs host Orlando City. Showers and a chance of thunderstorms today. Temperatures in the mid-60s. WBUR supporters include BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Don Gagne. Scott Simon is away. The Justice Department has released its long-awaited investigation into the Minneapolis police following the 2020 murder of George Floyd by police. That investigation sets the stage for a federal reform program for the police there. NPR's law enforcement correspondent Martin Costi joins us. Martin, thanks for being here. Sure, Don. Hi. So what did this uh, DOJ investigation tell us about the Minneapolis police? Well, uh, the DOJ has identified four broad problems or patterns. Uh, The first one is racial bias. They say the police in Minneapolis have had a pattern of stopping black people and Native Americans at a higher rate than whites. Uh, Second, that they have been too quick to use force, uh, both firearms as well as less lethal things like tasers. Uh, Third, they say that the Minneapolis police have suppressed free speech. Uh, This comes out of incidents uh, during the 2020 and 21 protests when officers physically punished protesters and journalists, sometimes with pepper spray, according to the investigators. And finally, there have been complaints about unnecessary police force against people with behavioral disabilities. The DOJ calls this discrimination. Uh, These are situations when the police use force even though the person doesn't seem to pose a threat. 
everything you describe, we've heard of police doing some of these things in other cities, especially during 2020. And it's certainly not news that Minneapolis police have committed abuses. Why is the Justice Department focused on Minneapolis specifically here? Well, the DOJ really had to take this step after George Floyd and the prominence of that horrific incident. Uh, The prosecution of Minneapolis officer Derek Chauvin and other officers did delay things for the feds here. But now that we have those convictions, the fundamental question of what led to that incident still remain. And here's Attorney General Merrick Garland talking about the past patterns of police behavior in Minneapolis. We also found that MPD officers failed to intervene to prevent unreasonable use of force by other officers. Indeed, as outlined in our report, years before he killed George Floyd, Derek Chauvin used excessive force on other occasions in which multiple MPD officers stood by and did not stop him. Martin, the Justice Department has identified what it calls a pattern of bad, and not just bad, but unconstitutional policing in Minneapolis. So what comes next? Well, now the feds want Minneapolis to agree to a reform plan, uh, something they call a consent decree. This is the federal government's biggest hammer when it comes to forcing local police to make changes. Under the implied threat here of a federal civil rights lawsuit, uh, they would negotiate with the city what that plan should look like. Garland said that the feds have 28 remedial measures in mind for Minneapolis, things like more training, better systems for holding officers accountable, that kind of thing. And Minneapolis officials, are they willing to accept the federal reform plans? Well, they certainly say they welcome this investigation um, and the federal help. They also, though, point to the steps they've already taken, such as banning chokeholds and no-knock warrants and the fact that they're working on a separate consent decree with the state of Minnesota. So this still is a negotiation here. The city has not yet agreed to the specifics of the federal plan. You know, whatever they do agree to, they'll be locked into probably years of effort and it'll probably cost quite a bit of money. Uh, The Minneapolis police also have other problems right now. This is Chief Brian O'Hara. He was brought on late last year. The MPD has lost hundreds of officers uh, over the last three years. And just like all of the residents of the city of Minneapolis, the officers who remain have experienced a whole lot of trauma. And the reality is this is an incredibly difficult job to be a police officer in this city at this time. And the chief says his job now is to rebuild this department and to recruit enough new officers who are committed to what everyone has been calling this cultural change. That's NPR's Martin Costi. Martin, thank you. You're welcome. After so much attention on the Republican field for president in 2024, President Joe Biden today in Philadelphia holds his first campaign rally for re-election. And that's where we'll begin our politics conversation with NPR senior editor and correspondent Ron Elding. Ron Elving. Ron? Good to be Good to be with you, Don. <laughs> okay, so President Biden, uh, I don't know, trying to capture some 2024 attention in the media cycle that's been dominated by the former president? Yes, he'd surely like to do that. But it's also a bit of a nostalgia play, Don. Uh, this is what campaigns looked like before the Internet. Lots of people in music and unions carrying their banners. Uh, this event highlights Biden's support from the AFL-CIO and other traditional Democratic groups. It says he's the incumbent and he has no major opponent in the party. That's always the first hurdle for an incumbent seeking re-election. But beyond his own party... 
Uh, Biden's showing himself here as the symbolic leader of the country, leading the national celebration on these warm weather patriotic holidays, Memorial Day, Juneteenth, the 4th of July, uh, Labor Day. It's an effort at uplift and unity in a time of tension and partisan division. Okay, the dramatic event that was former President Trump's arraignment this week. Has that begun to alter the political mood or the landscape at all? There has been a shift uh, so far, rather subtle, far less than some would expect. But our NPR, Maris Poll, and others have shown great awareness of the charges. And backlash or no backlash, an indictment of this magnitude is never a plus. And it's true, most Republicans see the charges as politically motivated, and they see Trump as more sinned against than sinning. But not everyone who's voted for Trump has been a diehard Trump fan. Some have just been voting for their party's nominee. Some are independents. And in those categories, Trump's numbers are not as strong. How has this affected those Republicans who are trying, in some sense, to succeed Trump? Trying to succeed him is a good way to put it. They don't expect to take the nomination away from him, but they hope to catch it if he can't hold on. So this week we got another entrant in the mayor of Miami, Francis Suarez. Uh, That makes it three official candidates from Florida, if you're keeping track at home. On the indictment, we've heard a couple say Trump should quit the race. A couple of others criticized his handling of the documents and several saying, hey, vote for me and I'll grant Trump a pardon. So I thought Mike Pence had kind of a good comeback to that. He asked why his rivals were presuming Trump would need a pardon. Okay, the Southern Baptist Convention held its annual meeting this week. It's always a big deal, and there was news. Tell us about it and what it might mean for Republican politics. Well, the Southern Baptists are the largest of the evangelical denominations, a tremendous anchor within that community, and they've been a key voting bloc for Trump and other Republicans. Uh, This week, they voted to deny fellowship to two congregations, one in Kentucky and another, a megachurch with tens of thousands of attendees in Southern California. Uh, Both had included women among their pastors. Uh, something other denominations have been doing for a very long time, but not the Southern Baptists. So this was a statement of, here we stand. And it bespeaks a kind of defiance that's been a key to some elements of the contemporary Republican coalition. Uh, Just a little bit of time left. One last thing. You and I have covered a lot of campaign cycles together. How's the economy shaping up as a factor in this one? Oh, it's always the economy. The economic news in the last couple of months has been improving. Uh, Inflation's down. Economy is still creating new jobs. But there are metrics that point to a coming recession. Economists are telling us maybe this year, maybe next. So for now, Biden will take any kind of good economy, even if he doesn't get much credit for it. He knows he'd get all the blame for a bad one. NPR's Ron Elving. Ron, thanks much. Thank you, Don. I'm a baseball fan, and at the game, I'm one of those guys with a pencil in one hand, scorecard in the other. I record everything, batter after batter, in tiny writing in the appropriate box on my score sheet. But that's not all I put down on the page. I mean, the story of the day doesn't just happen on the field. My scorecard from July 6, 2012, tells me I was there with two of my brothers-in-law, Detroit hosting Kansas City. It was hot, 94 degrees at game time. Tigers rookie Drew Smiley threw 10 strikeouts. Oh, and it was country music night. 
Okay. In August of 06 in Chicago, the White Sox topped that. It was Elvis night with Elvis impersonators skydiving onto the field. My youngest daughter has never enjoyed a ball game more. April 28th of 07, the Twins at Detroit with friends who had great seats near third base. It was sunny but cool. The Tigers lost big, but we still came out ahead thanks to pregame visits to the Lafayette Coney Island and to the amazing Diego Rivera murals at the Detroit Institute of Arts. It's all written down next to the hits, runs, and errors. I do have a favorite old scorecard. An unremarkable game on a Sunday in May of 04, Baltimore at Detroit. I was with my wife, my 11-year-old daughter, and my mom. Here's what happened that day. The Orioles won. My wife spilled her Slurpee onto her lap, a minor crisis. On a hot dog run, my daughter and I decided to race back up the cement steps. She tripped, banged her knee. Ouch, the scorecard proclaims. Here's what's not on the card. This was the last game I would ever attend with my mom. We lost her the following year. The Game started at 1.05. It ended at 4.17 p.m. That scorecard keeps hold of details from those three hours with my mom that otherwise might have faded or jumbled in my mind with other games in other years. There's one more ritual I should mention. At game's end, we all sign the scorecard to bear witness to the game and everything else. See you at the ballpark. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 818 and coming up in about 10 minutes here on 90.9 WBUR, you'll get the story on the ungrading phenomenon. Some colleges are ditching letter grades as part of an effort to get first year students to make it back to campus as sophomores. That and much more ahead on Weekend Edition Saturday. It's 65 degrees in Boston, some showers, a chance of thunderstorms, temperatures in the 60s. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org slash cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Cape Playhouse in Dennis Village. Now playing Fats Waller's Ain't Misbehavin'. Up next, Jane Austen's Sense and Sensibility. Tickets at capeplayhouse.com. Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square with private cooking events for team building, family reunions, birthday parties, or nights out. CambridgeCulinary.com. And Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com slash WBUR. I'm Windsor Johnston with these headlines. President Biden will hold his first official campaign rally since announcing his re-election bid. 
Biden is expected to outline his economic agenda during a stop in Philadelphia today. He'll also tout his sweeping tax cut and climate change law. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is scheduled to travel to China this weekend. The visit is an attempt to improve U.S. relations with Beijing as both countries pursue policies designed to counter the other's influence. Police in Uganda say more than three dozen people, mostly students, were killed in an attack on a school last night. Eight people are listed in critical condition. I'm Windsor Johnston, NPR News in Washington. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Capital One, offering their premium travel card, Venture X. Capital One, what's in your wallet? Details at CapitalOne.com. From BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at BetterHelp.com public. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, at macfound.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Don Gagne. Now for a story about what might have been if it weren't for a decade of war. Yemen has become one of the world's worst humanitarian crises. The fighting there is between a militia backed by Iran against a coalition supported by planes and troops from Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. Life was hard for most people before the war, but there were reasons for hope, at least as Yemenis look back now. NPR's Fatma Tanis brings us this rare view from Yemen in the city of Taiz. Hi, Fatma. Hi, Don. Tell us a bit about the promise of Yemen before the war. Well, the country has a lot of natural resources, which the world may have forgotten about. It produces some of the most highly prized coffee in the world. It has incredible ancient architecture, lots of potential for tourism. And there are oil reserves, too, which are now controlled by Saudi Arabia. Uh, Ten years ago, there was hope that we'd see some of that potential after their dictator was ousted. But it all changed when Houthis had an uprising in the north, and it blew up into a proxy war between Iran, which backed the Houthis, and Saudi Arabia and the UAE, which backed the Yemeni government. Still, Yemenis here are very aware of their country's potential. You know, they speak reverently of how green and fertile the land is with beaches and desert and mountains. But the war has really gotten in the way of all of that. The most critical toll has been on the people themselves. Hundreds and thousands estimated to have died from sickness and hunger. You've been seeing a lot of people directly wounded in the war. What have you been hearing from them? Yes, I went to a prosthetic center in Taiz here. At least 400 new patients came to the center in the last year alone, despite the war slowing down, mostly because of landmines. More than 100 of the victims were young children, and all around the city you can see people with prosthetic arms or legs going about their day. Then there are survivors of Saudi airstrikes, which also took many civilian lives. You know, the U.S. initially supported the Saudi air campaign, but all the civilian deaths made it sort of cut back on that support. Uh, I met a man who had lost 10 members of his family in a single night. His name is Marwan Saleh Saif, and it took him six days to recover their remains. Eight years after that airstrike, he's still searching for justice. 
He says he wants an acknowledgement and apology from Saudi Arabia and for it to repair the damage to buildings at least. But so far, he's heard nothing but a denial that the attack happened and it haunts him to this day. And tell us a little about the frontline city where you are. So Taiz is a divided city, very much symbolic of the war. You know, the north and east parts of the city are controlled by the Houthi militias. The rest, including where I am, is controlled by the Saudi coalition, which backs the government. And life is really difficult here. You know, the economy is devastated. There no longer is a single currency in Yemen. Both sides have their own banknotes that make the other worthless. Many families are struggling to buy the basics like food. And the signs of war are everywhere. Buildings are covered in bullet marks or, you know, with gaping holes from rockets and missiles. Now there are peace talks underway, but Yemenis tell me that even if the war ended today, the country would still need extensive help for a long time. And if you ask them what the war is all about, what kind of answers do you get? Well, first of all, they roll their eyes and say it's all been for nothing. They say that in the past nine years, their country has become a battleground for other countries' rivalries. I spoke with a 21-year-old college student, Sahar Raghe, about this. Let's hear some of what she said. She says, if the international players leave us Yemenis alone, we can sort this out amongst ourselves in a matter of days. You know, there's also a backdrop of sectarianism in this conflict. The Houthis are Shia and the government side are mostly Sunni. That was not so pronounced before, but the war has prompted more extremism on both sides, according to Yemenis. And one thing they all agree on is that the war really has them at their wits' end. They're just worn down and desperate for it to end at this point. That's NPR's Fatma Tanis in Taiz, Yemen. Thank you. Thank you. It's been nearly a week since an Interstate 95 overpass outside of Philadelphia essentially melted when a tanker truck burst into flames underneath it. The incident killed the truck's driver, but no one else was harmed. It's also shut down traffic in both directions on the indispensable East Coast Highway and forced vehicles to take detours along slower roads. WHYY's Tom McDonald joins us now to bring us the latest. Hi, Tom. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. First, what do they know so far about why the tanker truck turned over and and the overpass collapsed? We have a video that was taken on social media that they think is accurate. The driver was coming off Interstate 95, but at this exit, there's a curve underneath the highway. He was driving a truck filled with 8,500 gallons of gasoline. He hit the wall, the truck exploded, and it melted the bridge. Literally, the steel girders underneath the bridge were twisted like a pretzel. Wow. A couple days ago, Pennsylvania Governor Josh Shapiro announced a reconstruction plan involving 2,000 tons of recycled glass pieces, I guess is the word. Uh, How is that going to work? They're going to take the chunks and fill in the highway. This was a bridge over the highway. So they have now taken off the steel from the top of the bridge and the concrete, and they are just going to fill the void up and put in six lanes of asphalt over top of that new fill. The interesting part about this is the material. 
it's something that resembles a plastic styrofoam cooler that you would use for a day. And it's taken down into small chunks, I'd say about the size of a stick of gum and about three, four inches wide. If you think about frosting a cake, they've got a conveyor belt taking this stuff up and building it up layer by layer, and then they're going to top it off with some asphalt. And any idea how long it's going to take? Well, that is the very important question. Everybody wants to know, and nobody's telling us. And what are motorists doing in the meantime? I mean, obviously, they're taking detours, but uh, is there some sense of how much time is added on to the average trip? Well, the trip in the southbound direction can be done relatively quickly. It's the northbound direction that's a longer trip. It can be 20 minutes. It can be five minutes. It can be an hour. It all depends on the time of day, depending on travel, depending on how many people take the main detour. Now, there are other detours, and no two are the same. From the aerial pictures that you see, this gap in I-95 doesn't look all that wide. I mean, a gap is a gap, obviously, but... Um, I mean, I'm thinking of those Fast and Furious movies, right? And a good stunt driver could probably clear this gap. I'm not suggesting that. But how much pain is that little gap uh, causing the local and national economy right now? A lot. 8% of the national economy allegedly moves up and down this corridor in the Northeast. And that's got a lot of people saying that this could lead to food price increases and people who want to take travel. So they're not putting a number on it yet, but I guarantee you before this is over, somebody's going to come up with a number on it. And there are a lot of side streets that are just blocked off because of this. What are small businesses who are on or along those side streets doing? And, and they they got to be losing customers. They're hurting a lot. They are saying that they don't have any customers. One person I talked to earlier this week said they closed three hours early because there was no use staying open. There was no reason to be open because nobody was there. The customers are calling for routes, they're giving routes, and people still can't get into the area right around where the collapse happened. That's WHYY's reporter, Tom McDonald. Tom, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. The end of the academic year is here, but for many first-year students, it might be the end of their college career. About one in four won't return for their sophomore year. As colleges grapple with how to prevent students from dropping out, an old idea is getting a second look, doing away with letter grades, at least for that crucial first year. Ki Sung from member station KQED reports. UC Santa Cruz sophomore Loki Malik barely made it through his freshman year. Because I didn't do well. And the most challenging part about that year? Is not the coursework, it's learning how to be an adult. Like I had to learn how to balance my finances, I had to learn how to balance work and school and the relationship I'm in. His grades suffered as he began to feel overwhelmed. I had to learn how to kind of become a person and grades were absolutely an added stressor. Uh, and it hurts to not do well because I was a very gifted kid. And like so many students, when his grades slipped, his mental health took a hit too. It took a while for me to like detangle my sense of self-worth from the grades that I was getting. Student mental health concerns, like Malik's, is one of several reasons college campuses are now considering doing away with traditional letter grades in favor of an alternative practice called ungrading. 
thing about grades is they are not related to learning. That's Jody Green, Associate Vice Provost for Teaching and Learning at UC Santa Cruz. Grades are not a representation of student learning. As much as hard as it is for us to break the mindset that if the student got an A, it means they learned. Green has been a longtime advocate of ungrading because researchers have found that traditional grading systems can be inequitable and unreliable. A group of freshmen on campus, including Serena Ramirez, agree. I'm so concerned about getting an A that I'm just so stressed in the class that I can barely focus. Tamara Caselin and Danielson Perez, who are first-generation college students, also feel the pressure. Students talk more about the grades, like, oh, I got an A in this class, I got this grade in this class, and it's very competitive. We're people of color, so it was a lot of pressure to have good grades all the time. Especially for freshmen, getting good grades comes amid all the other challenges of adapting to college life for the first time. So what can ungrading look like? Jody Green has a few examples. It can mean not having grades, but it can also mean if you complete this amount of work, you will get these grades. Imagine getting a written assessment of your skills throughout the semester and reading about how your skills developed. Ungrading could also mean deciding how you want to be assessed. Is it a project or a report based on goals and areas of improvement you have for yourself? It could also mean more standardized pass, no pass options. And so it takes the kind of bad magic out of the grading process. MIT, Wellesley College, and Brown University are among the growing number of research universities that have various forms of ungrading programs in place for first-year students. And the push is not just about reducing stress. In California last year, a UC Board of Regents report found that traditional grades mostly reflect existing economic, social, and educational inequities. Critics of ungrading, among them Rick Hess at the conservative-leaning American Enterprise Institute, says grades prepare students for the real world. To tell me that these students are too fragile at age 18 or 19 for their educators to actually give them feedback on what they've learned or what they've mastered strikes me as missing a... uh, a pretty significant element of the of the purpose of higher education. Hess says things like grades and assignments can be enormously useful handrails to help you make your way. Without letter grades, he's concerned that students won't know if they're doing well. This concern is not new at UC Santa Cruz. While the campus opened in the 1960s as a leader in ungrading, by 2001, the faculty voted overwhelmingly to make letter grades mandatory, citing concerns about the need for grades to qualify for scholarships and graduate school. Even though Loki Malik is no longer a freshman, they see the promise of ungrading for first-year students. Taking away one of the barriers to access and to success isn't coddling as much as it is empowering. The world has always been hard. And as students that are coming into college during this pivotal moment in our global history, we're more aware of that than any other generation. Malik, who says he barely made it through freshman year, is now on track to graduate in 2025. For NPR News, I'm Ki Sung. The story was reported in collaboration with The Heckinger Report. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. We are in the middle of something called the Medicaid Unwinding. 
the government health insurance program for people with low incomes and those with disabilities grew to over 95 million people during the pandemic. There were special COVID protections. The federal government mandated states could not drop anyone from coverage, and people did not have to reapply to stay on the program. Now those protections have ended, and states are starting to drop people, a lot of people, nowhere more so than Florida. Joining us now is Veronica Zaragovia, health reporter at member station WLRN in Miami. Welcome, Veronica. Thank you so much, Don. How is this Medicaid unwinding proceeding in Florida and across the U.S.? Well, nationwide, 1.1 million people have been dropped, and healthcare analysts say that's an alarmingly fast rate. It's going quicker than, than they expected. Now, in Florida, 250,000 people have been dropped because of paperwork problems, which is a common problem across the country. People didn't confirm proof of income or household size, and then they were dropped, even though the majority are actually still eligible. How are people finding out they're not enrolled anymore if the state says they couldn't get in touch by phone or by mail in the first place? A lot of them have said that they'll either go to a pharmacy or they'll deal with a hospitalization or go to the doctor and then or even a specialist, for instance, and then find out that they owe the full rate instead of what the insurance would have covered. And so that's when they find out because maybe they've moved during the pandemic or they've changed their provider and have a new phone number. So they didn't know that they needed to send in any kind of paperwork to to still qualify for their Medicaid. Have you spoken to anyone in that position? Yes, I have. I've spoken to parents, for instance, one mother whose daughter requires around-the-clock nursing care, and she's lost her nurse now because of this, or another mother who only could go by her first name. She was worried about the impact of her job. Her name is Melissa, and she has two minor children. Uh, One has a heart condition that has led him to get hospitalized for a few days at a time, and he takes expensive Uh, heart medication and a daughter who's diabetic and she's insulin resistant. So she takes very expensive medication and she's very stressed out about this. We need help. We can't get over this hump to keep moving forward. And that's all we're trying to do is survive. And then you take away the one thing that they need, healthcare. How are we going to be healthy enough to continue working? So what is the federal government doing and, and what can people like Melissa do to get back on the program? The federal government sent a letter to governors asking for states to take a month and pause this unwinding, help people get back on. But people in states like Florida do need to appeal having been dropped, and they have 90 days in Florida to do that. And that way they'll get their expenses covered that they've incurred during this time of not having Medicaid. Veronica Zaragovia of WLRN in Miami, thank you so much. Thank you so much. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. 
A Tewksbury resident has initiated a class action lawsuit against Harvard Medical School and its former morgue manager. John Bozick says his mother had donated her body to the school for research purposes, and he thinks her body was among those that the morgue's former manager allegedly harvested for body parts. The former morgue manager, his wife, and others are facing federal charges. The Red Sox beat the Yankees at Fenway Park last night 15-5, to but in the top of the fifth inning, a scary situation silenced the crowd. A line drive hit Sox pitcher Tanner Houck just below the right eye and sent him to the ground. The initial diagnosis, a facial contusion. Houck got stitches at the ballpark and then went to a hospital for observation. It's 65 degrees in Boston, showers around today, a chance of some thunderstorms and temperatures in the mid-60s. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Museum of Science. Maneuver through vibrant mind-bending illusions, 3D puzzles, and kinetic play at the new traveling exhibit, Mazes and Brain Games. Tickets at MOS.org. Merrimack College, committed to providing teachers with MED degrees, credentials, and personalized career-long mentoring online.merrimack.edu, and JBS Home Inspections, with condo common area inspections as well as home inspections for buyers and sellers throughout greater Boston, jbsinspections.com. The city of Milwaukee has an ambitious climate plan to cut its carbon emissions. There's a lot of different ways that climate change is affecting us, even here in the Midwest. We've got to act. We've waited way too long. Hundreds of U.S. cities have similar plans, and very few have met their goals. Why not? Is there a better way for cities to tackle climate change? I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. That's On Point Monday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the NPR Wine Club, where members can explore wines from around the world with stories behind each one and bottles inspired by favorite NPR shows. Available to adults 21 or older, nprwineclub.org. And from Staples, with supplies to get business done no matter where it gets done, from ink and toner cartridges to technology like laptops and networking accessories. More at Staples stores or staples.com. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Don Gagne. Cormac McCarthy died this week, and the world of literature lost a great American novelist. Just last year, he published two new novels. The books were interconnected with plots set in motion by a mysterious plane crash at sea. Devoted fans had been waiting 16 years for a new work from McCarthy. Let's revisit the story behind the books, originally aired last fall from NPR's John Burnett. By all accounts, Cormac McCarthy has been working on The Passenger and its sequel, Stella Maris, for at least four decades. Jenny Jackson, the executive editor at Knopf, was brought in in 2014 to work with him in secret. Eight years ago, it was so cloak and dagger that we were working on these books just because McCarthy fans are rabid and and any whiff of there being new books was going to be huge news and so we would walk down the hall and hand off manuscripts in person and you know I, I wasn't telling anyone what we were working on it was fun we're sitting in the napoleon house drinking pimps cups it's a venerable watering hole in the french quarter of new orleans where mccarthy lived as a young penurious writer 
The protagonist in The Passenger is a troubled commercial diver named Bobby Western, who frequents the Napoleon House for rambling discourses with eccentric buddies. At the beginning, there's this like kind of big cast of boisterous characters, and they're all, you know, working as divers and having drinks together and going out to restaurants. And then at the end, they're all each kind of on their own singular journey. Neither of these two new books contains the savagery and bloodletting McCarthy readers have come to expect. There is less action overall and more dialogue. Readers may wonder if McCarthy has mellowed now that he's 89 years old. A breathless blurb on the back cover of The Passenger reads, A sunken jet, nine passengers, a missing body, a salvage diver pursued for a conspiracy beyond his understanding. But this is not a fast-paced crime thriller, like No Country for Old Men. McCarthy's book became an Oscar-winning screenplay for the Coen brothers. What's the most you ever lost on a coin toss? Sir? The most you ever lost on a coin toss? I don't know. I couldn't say. Call it. Call it, yes. The Passenger starts out as a whodunit, but then it veers into Bobby's metaphysical musings. Again, Jenny Jackson. It's what we keep saying over and over again, is that when you're Cormac McCarthy and you've written The Road, what on earth can you do next except tackle God and human consciousness? The Road is McCarthy's best-selling last novel, released in 2006, about a father and son's harrowing journey through a post-apocalyptic landscape. It won a Pulitzer. Here is the reclusive author describing the genesis of The Road in his only broadcast interview, granted to Oprah Winfrey in 2007. I just had this image of these fires up on the hill and everything being laid waste, and I thought a lot about my little boy. And so I wrote those pages, and that was the end of it. And then about four years later, I was in Ireland, and I woke up one morning and I realized that it wasn't two pages of another book. It was a book. The new books are not dark so much as they are dense. Notably, they reflect McCarthy's love and thorough understanding of theoretical physics and mathematics. He has said in his few interviews that he prefers the company of scientists at the Santa Fe Institute near his home in New Mexico. Determined McCarthy fanatics have found advanced copies of the books, and they provoked strong reactions. The novels explore all these aspects of human mental behavior. Um, I think they're just marvelous. In some ways, you know, they're flawed. They are likely to be inscrutable to a lot of people. Let's just say they're not my favorite novels. They are brain teasers, but they're also really compelling, and the characters are really rich and fascinating. And I think people are going to love them or hate them. That's Diane Luce, former president of the Cormac McCarthy Society, Brian Gemza, literature professor at Texas Tech University, and Lydia Cooper, English professor at Creighton University. They were interviewed last month at the Cormac McCarthy Conference in Savannah, Georgia. One of the organizers of that conference was Stacy Peebles. She's an English professor who teaches a McCarthy course at Center College. She's also editor of the Cormac McCarthy Journal. I've had students coming by my office. They say, are you going to teach the new ones? I'm so excited, you know, um, I'm, I'm definitely signing up. Peebles has read both of the new books. You know, we've been waiting for these a long time. I mean, there's always a possibility that you're going to read something new and be disappointed. But I read them once, I read them again, and I'll probably keep reading them. I mean, all of McCarthy's works have sentences that'll just stop you cold, but these have a lot of those.
God's own mudlark trudging cloaked and muttering the barren selvage of some nameless desolation where the cold sidereal sea breaks and seethes and the storms howl from out of that black and heaving alkahest. McCarthy, who still composes on a manual typewriter, is considered one of the greatest and most influential writers in the English language. I began to notice fairly early on that a lot of these students were writing like Cormac McCarthy. Texas novelist Stephen Harrigan made this observation when he taught a fiction writing course at the Missioner Center for Writers at the University of Texas at Austin. They were writing with, uh, with strange locutions, like he rode isolate into the darkling plain, <laughs> that kind of language, you know. And, uh, and this also this Old Testament archaic usage that, that creates a kind of spell, particularly for young writers. The McCarthy spell is about to be cast again, and not just for readers, but for researchers. Cormac McCarthy's literary papers are archived in a locked cabinet in the Whitliffe Collections at Texas State University. Steve Davis, literary curator there, rolls it open for an inquisitive reporter. So it's about a hundred boxes of Cormac material that we have here. Um, his collection begins with his first book, Outer Dark, 98 boxes to be exact. And the 98th box has been restricted for 15 years. McCarthy scholars are already standing in line to delve into it the same day The Passenger goes on sale. This is the box for the new novel, The Passenger. And we're gonna pull out this first big folder which says The Passenger, old first draft. Typescript and photocopy pages heavily corrected in pencil. Perhaps the contents of this box will reveal how Cormac McCarthy's challenging new novels evolved and why he wrote them. John Burnett, NPR News. And just to note, those novels were published late last year when this story originally aired. Cormac McCarthy died this week at 89. Country music has a long, long list of greats. There's Hank, and there's Cash, and Carter, and Dolly, and Loretta, and we could go on and on and on. Now, these days, country radio has strayed from that classic sound, but not so our next guest. In her own words, she ain't through honky-tonking yet. Brennan Lee describes her new record as vintage country, and we're catching up with her out on the road, somewhere in the UK, I understand, promoting it. Brennan, welcome. Thank you for having me, Dawn. And yeah, I'm, I'm talking to you uh, from London. How do you define that honky-tonk sound? I mean, what, what are the ingredients? What are the arrangements? What are the instruments? Uh, I don't think we need to define country music in a narrow way. Uh, it's a huge umbrella. There are a lot of different kinds of country. And I think we have kind of a strange, awkward authenticity obsession in our genre. And we do a lot of quibbling back and forth about what's real country and what isn't. You know, is it real country if it doesn't have a steel guitar? Is it real country if it mentions a cell phone? Do we want it to be a museum relic that's perfectly preserved and never changes? Or do we want it to be relevant to real life. 
I admit that when I first heard your song, Every Time I Do, it felt like you were channeling, not impersonating, but channeling the great Patsy Cline. That's been said about that track, and it's, it's a compliment. Every time I do There was just an honesty to songs that I think people were really tapped into in those days. If you look at some of the songs from even the 40s and 50s, I feel like one thing we really had going for us in those days was we had this raw human emotion. We had things like shame and regret that were right at the center of the songwriting. You know, Patsy Cline would be a great example of somebody that she was just this raw nerve of a soul in, in her singing and the songs that she would choose. You've given us a song about uh, a woman in what maybe has traditionally been thought of as a man's job, and it's called Carol with an E. Let's give a listen to a bit of it. She Where did this character, where did this song come from? I wrote Carol with an E with my friend Mallory Eagle, who's a songwriter from Oklahoma. And Mallory had a neighbor who was a long haul trucker named Carol. And we became fascinated with this character. She was this little lady who had chosen the truck in life as her career. And she would wear little kitten heels and pearls and had really nice nails and just not necessarily what you would think of as a trucker uniform. And she became sort of a movement for us. We talk about Carol energy. We all need a little Carol energy, I think. Your career in country music has been based in Austin, Texas, and in Nashville, but your roots run along that Minnesota-North Dakota border. That's where you're from. How does that part of the country shape what is your country music sound? You know, my mom and dad were big country music fans. Are. My mom and dad are big country music fans, and I raided their record collection and was a playing on the floor when they would have, you know, picking parties and things like that. So sometimes my folks would have people over and they would play, you know, whatever songs they knew. Hell hath no fire like blind desire. It's too late soon as it catches. Out of hand like a broken dam for gasoline to matches. Like a moth to flame, I set my aim on the red flags. 
the red flags you were waving. Tell us about this song. This was, and obviously the idea of a red flag is sort of a modern, you know, buzzword, something that you hear a lot now, nowadays about dating and relationships and things like that. So no one would have used this word in 1965. But I liked it so much because it was, you know, I could write about just a kamikaze dive towards something that's really bad for you. And, you know, in this case, a person. I want to go out on the song, uh, The Bar Should Say Thanks. I mean, it's chock full of a bunch of those country music cliches. But I say that as a compliment. I mean, it's, it's, it's great and it's funny. And it's real. Thank you. Um, my brother, Seth, and I wrote this song together. Like a lot of great song ideas, uh, we overheard something. And in this case, it was a friend of the family who had said, was kind of rambling about something and said, the bar should thank me. The bar should say thanks for all the good times I brought with me. A total blank. I was a life of the party. One of my favorite things in country music is alcoholic denial. When you're in this overconfident kind of haze and the audience of the song understands what's going on, but the singer, the narrator of the song doesn't. I really appreciate and enjoy the challenge of writing a song like that. George Jones had quite a career with songs like uh, You this. took the words right out of my mouth. A song, you know, a song like, uh, She Thinks I Still Care. He doesn't know he still cares, but we do. What's it like when you play these songs live? Do you feel people are maybe transported in some way? I like to look out and be able to see identification. When people laugh at the same things I laugh at, or they get emotional about the same things I do, I feel like I'm making the connection that I want to make. I was sort of mimicking when I was in my teens and, and beyond, you know, mimicking Hank Williams and mimicking, you know, someone like Tom T. Hall. But, you know, I'm starting to get the stories because I've been around a little longer and that feels more genuine. I can actually write from life. We've been talking to Brennan Lee. Her new record, Ain't Through Honky Tonkin' Yet, is out now. Brennan Lee, thank you so much for joining us. Don, thank you for having me on the show. And it's all because of me. The bar should say things. Who they wake up each night. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Don Gagne. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. And from the Nature Conservancy, partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises, committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive. Nature.org slash solutions. This is NPR. Thanks for listening to Weekend Edition here on 90.9 WBUR. It's 65 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Worcester Art Museum with Frontiers of Impressionism, featuring works by over 30 artists, including Monet, Renoir, Cassatt, and more, now open. WorcesterArt.org.
Salem State University School of Graduate Studies. Join classmates with varied professional and educational backgrounds. SalemState.edu slash graduate. And Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. On last week's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, Emmy Blotnick got a real vote of confidence. My pants just texted me I'm doing a great job. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Peter Sagal. We think your entire wardrobe will approve of this week's show with actor James Marsden, star of the cult hit TV show Jury Duty, joining us as our guest, or maybe pretending to. Join us for an uncertain news quiz from NPR. Saturday and now Sunday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR. I'm healthcare reporter Martha Biebinger, and this is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Don Gagne. U.S. relations with China have hit a rough patch. Now, Secretary of State Blinken is off to Beijing with a simple goal, to at least get basic communication back on track. Also this hour, Democrats eye North Carolina for 2024, a place they've carried just once since the Jimmy Carter era, and they're looking to every corner of the state. I know there are rural people out there right now that are angry at not having a choice because democracy is not democracy without choices. And some glorious East African funk by way of the NPR Tiny Desk Contest. First, our newscast, it's Saturday, June 17th, 2023. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. President Biden will take his re-election campaign to Philadelphia today. During a rally with union workers, Biden is expected to tout his economic agenda and plans for a second term in the White House. Biden will also receive an update on efforts to rebuild a stretch of Interstate 95 that collapsed in Philadelphia last Sunday. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is heading to China this weekend. Speaking ahead of the trip, Blinken said Washington and Beijing need to establish better lines of communication. One of the clear demand signals that that we get, uh, including from our close friends and partners, is that both the United States and the PRC will responsibly manage this relationship and look for areas where uh, our cooperation might produce results that benefit not only our own people, but people around the world, including uh, in the region. Secretary Blinken was scheduled to visit China in February, but postponed the trip after accusing Beijing of sending a spy balloon across the United States. Sweden is still waiting on the governments of Turkey and Hungary to approve its membership in NATO. Terry Schultz reports that with just one month to go before NATO's summit, there's concern the accession might not be finalized by then. 
NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg says it's past time for Ankara to approve Sweden's membership. My message has been now for many, many months that uh, actually Sweden has delivered. Stoltenberg is referring to pledges Sweden made to, for example, step up counter-terrorism cooperation with Turkey. Swedish Defence Minister Paul Jonsson says while he appreciates Stoltenberg's endorsement. We also have respectful the fact that it's only Turkey who can make Turkish decision, it's only Hungary who can make Hungarian decision. On Wednesday, the top Republican on the U.S. Senate Foreign Relations Committee blocked an arms sale to Hungary because it has not yet approved Sweden's accession. For NPR News, I'm Terry Schultz in Brussels. Stocks on Wall Street lost ground on Friday but still ended up for the week. NPR's Scott Horsley reports the Dow gained one and a quarter quarter percent. All the major stock indexes finished higher for the week. The S&P 500 rose more than two and a half percent, while the Nasdaq jumped three and a quarter percent. Investors were cheered by the Federal Reserve's decision on Wednesday to hold interest rates steady, even though Fed policymakers hinted that further rate hikes could be coming as soon as next month. A new cost of living report from the Labor Department this past week showed inflation easing. Prices in May were up 4 percent from a year ago. That's the smallest annual increase in more than two years. Two new surveys show people are a little less concerned now about price hikes in the coming year. Many people are still spending freely, and retail sales jumped last month by three-tenths of a percent. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Federal authorities are charging three men from New Hampshire in connection with a campaign of intimidation and harassment of two journalists employed by New Hampshire Public Radio. WBUR's Anthony Brooks reports. The attacks began last April when vandals targeted the homes of journalist Lauren Chuljan of NHPR, her parents, and her editor. They began not long after Chuljan reported on allegations of sexual misconduct against Eric Spofford, who built a network of addiction treatment centers across New Hampshire. Spofford tried to get NHPR to retract the story, but has denied any connection to the vandalism. Jim Schachter, chief executive of NHPR, says he's grateful for law enforcement's persistence in the case. Journalists doing their jobs should not have to worry about threats of violence or attacks on their homes and their families. Investigators allege that all five attacks were intended to harass and intimidate NHPR journalists. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Anthony Brooks. This is DNA Drive Day in Newton. Middlesex District Attorney Marion Ryan is inviting people to take free DNA tests in front of Newton City Hall at 10 this morning. She says she hopes the drive will help the DA's office solve missing and unidentified persons cases. Participants also will get information about their ancestry. The event is the first of its kind in Massachusetts. Several elected officials are celebrating Juneteenth in Hyde Park today. Governor Maura Healey, Boston Mayor Michelle Wu, and Congresswoman Ayanna Presley will attend the party at New Mission High School at 10 a.m. Activities will include kids' crafts, food samples, exhibits, and arts performances. Last night at Fenway, the Red Sox beat the Yankees 15-5. to They play again tonight. No update yet on the condition of Tanner Houck. Last night, a line drive hit the Sox pitcher in the face. The initial diagnosis, a contusion. He went to the hospital for observation. In Foxborough tonight, the Revs host Orlando City. In the forecasts, showers today, a chance of some thunderstorms, temperatures in the mid-60s. This is WBUR. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Don Gagne. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is on his way to China, and there's a lot riding on this trip. Relations between the two countries have been on a downward spiral, and Blinken is trying to find a better way to communicate with Beijing. If we want to make sure, as we do, that the competition that we have with China doesn't veer into conflict, the place you start is with communicating. NPR's diplomatic correspondent, Michelle Kellerman, joins us now. Michelle, thanks for being here. Nice to be here, Don. What exactly does Secretary Blinken hope to get out of this? So mostly it is just that, to establish what he calls this open and empowered communications with China. Chinese leader Xi Jinping is likely to come to the U.S. later this year for an Asia-Pacific summit in San Francisco. President Biden may also see him at the G20 gathering in India in the fall. So Secretary Blinken has to prepare for all that. He's expected to meet Xi Jinping himself at some point while he's in Beijing Sunday and Monday. He also says he wants to explore areas where the U.S. and China might be able to work together. Think about climate change or illicit drugs, health and the global economy, things like that. You know, Blinken says the world is counting on the two countries to at least deal with these issues together. The Biden administration calls this the most consequential and challenging relationship. How much are others in the region paying attention to this? They are a lot. You know, before leaving, Secretary Blinken met with Singapore's foreign minister, Vivian Balakrishnan, and he says there needs to be a modus vivendi between the U.S. and China because these two are crucial to resolving most global issues. So he told reporters that he and the rest of the world are watching and calling this a critical juncture. Fifty years ago, when Henry Kissinger went to Beijing, it completely reordered the strategic furniture in the globe. We are coming close to a point when this will be necessary again. So the stakes are really high, Don. And, you know, the Singaporean foreign minister thinks that Blinken is up to the task. He called him a consummate diplomat who's cool and rational, but he also didn't want to raise too many expectations for this trip. Just listen to this exchange also from their joint news conference on Friday. Please don't put too much weight on poor Tony's shoulders. <laughs> you know, the, the fact is, diplomats need time and space and sometimes just some quiet time to engage in some honest-to-goodness conversations. The foreign minister of Singapore called Blinken's trip to China essential, but not sufficient. And what are the Chinese saying about the trip? Are they lowering expectations also? They are, and they're also laying down some markers. They say that the U.S. needs to respect China's core interests, including on Taiwan, and they say that the U.S. should not meddle in China's internal affairs. Um, Secretary Blinken says he plans to raise some human rights issues and some specific cases of detained Americans. So the conversations um, could be pretty tough. You know, he was supposed to go to Beijing in February, but that trip was scuttled by that 
Chinese spy balloon saga. Uh, the State Department is clearly hoping there's going to be more smooth sailing, shall we say, this time around. All right. NPR's Michelle Kellerman. Michelle, thanks. Thank you. A Russian court this week sentenced a leading associate of opposition leader Alexei Navalny to seven and a half years in prison on extremism-related charges. The ruling is the latest in a series of questionable convictions and lengthy prison terms issued to political opponents of the Kremlin. Here's NPR's Charles Maines in Moscow. 41-year-old Delia Chanisheva has always denied charges she's an extremist, and she doesn't seem to fit the profile. Chanisheva worked at a major international accounting firm in Moscow before moving back to her native Bashkortostan, a republic nestled to the west of the Ural Mountains. She could have stayed and made money in Moscow, says her husband Almaz Gatin, but she wanted to improve life in her home region. And that's where the trouble began. Chanasheva took a job running the regional office of Alexei Navalny's anti-corruption foundation in the capital city of Fa, where her skills as a financial auditor quickly made her an effective check on budgetary graft, but also, her allies argue, a government target. Video investigations by Chanasheva alleging state corruption earned her the ire of the region's governor, as did protests she helped organize successfully against a government-backed mining operation on lands locals considered sacred. Hello. Hi, Charles. As her popularity grew, Chanasheva also fielded occasional requests from Western journalists. Our people really don't understand uh, the serious all this situation. I spoke with her while researching COVID-related deaths in the region in 2020, and Chanasheva dusted off her English for a bit. I have not uh, sufficient practice last years, and <laughs> it will be better for me in Russia, probably, and it will be quicker. <laughs> but even as her political career was taking off, pressure from the authorities was growing. Gatin says his wife faced constant arrest and raids by police on their home, convincing him she'd become the most important politician in Bashkortostan. Critics called her Navalny in a skirt. In fact, Chanasheva's detention on extremism charges came amid a wider crackdown on Navalny's political network in the fall of 2021. Her arrest, a harbinger of the shifting political climate in the months before Russia's invasion of Ukraine, one that saw Navalny jailed, but also Chanasheva and soon other women targeted. After the verdict, Chanasheva thanked her supporters through the glass-enclosed defendant's cage. Without you, there is no me, she told them. Meanwhile, Gatin says his wife's seven-and-a-half-year sentence robs Bashkortostan of a new generation of leadership, but only for now. We'll continue to fight, he says. For women like Lilia are the bridge, he tells me, to peace, to the future to everything. Charles Maines, NPR News, Moscow. A streak that lasted 15 months is over. Since March of 2022, the Federal Reserve has hiked interest rates each and every time it met. This week, it's pressed pause. The Fed hasn't won its war on high inflation, but policymakers feel comfortable enough to take a break. NPR's David Gura explains why. When the Federal Reserve raises interest rates, the economy doesn't change overnight. It takes time, as I heard from every economist and market strategist I talked to. I'm serious. Every single one. 
Monetary policy, is, as is often said, happens with long and variable lags. There are lags in monetary policy. Milton Friedman famously spoke of the long and variable lag of monetary policy. That's Russ Kostrich, Julia Coronado, and Carl Riccadonna. Julia Coronado is a former Fed economist who translated that jargon for me. She runs the economic research firm Macro Policy Perspectives. There's some time between when the Fed actually raises interest rates and when the full impact of those interest rate hikes hit the economy. Now, we haven't seen the full impact yet, but credit has gotten tighter as the Fed has raised interest rates, which is the goal to slow down the economy by making it tough for people and companies to borrow money. There's a lot of things pointing in the right direction. Signs inflation is easing. You've probably noticed how far egg prices have fallen. Plane tickets cost less. So do tickets to sporting events. The Fed doesn't think they're done necessarily, but they're seeing enough signs that things are moderating, that the economy's cooling off, that they can at least slow down the pace of rate hikes. Growth is subdued, to quote Fed Chair Jerome Powell, and he and his colleagues expect that won't change anytime soon. A cautiously optimistic Powell noted inflation has moderated somewhat, and the latest data were better than Wall Street expected. Consumer prices in May were up 4% from a year ago, which means inflation is not running as hot as it was. It's less than half what it was at its recent peak, but it's still higher than the Fed wants. Here's Powell speaking this week. Inflation pressures continue to run high, and the process of getting inflation back down to 2% has a long way to go. 2% inflation is the Fed's target. Well, there's no consensus among economists of how long it'll take to get there. And one reason policymakers didn't raise rates again is there is still so much uncertainty. Uncertainty about the housing market, for instance. Mortgage rates have climbed very quickly, which has led to a dramatic slowdown. Then there were the failures of those three U.S. banks earlier this year. Ryan Sweet of Oxford Economics says the Fed is still not sure what the effects of that'll be and when we'll see them. So it's not going to affect the economy this week, next week, or next month. It's going to be late this year, early next. But Sweet says we've seen credit getting even tighter because lenders have gotten more cautious after Silicon Valley Bank collapsed and Signature Bank and First Republic. So they're tightening the screws. The Fed doesn't want credit to get too tight. That could lead to a recession, which Powell still believes is avoidable. And Wall Street has hopped on that bandwagon, according to Russ Kostrich. He's a portfolio manager at BlackRock who sees that optimism reflected in the stock market's performance. The rally reflects the view that the Fed will be able to both bring inflation down and avoid recession. The S&P 500 is in a bull market again. It's up more than 20 percent from its recent low, along with the Dow and the Nasdaq. But Kostrich says this is not your classic broad-based bull market. It has been a very narrow rally. And, you know, gains have been disproportionately driven by a handful of stocks, almost all of which are on the tech side and many are connected to the boom in AI. The latest projections from Fed policymakers suggest there will be two more interest rate hikes before the end of the year. But Powell says he and his colleagues haven't decided how long this pause will last. There are six weeks to go until the Fed meets again in July. And right now, Wall Street is betting there will be another rate hike then. David Gura, NPR News, New York.
You're listening to NPR News. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. In about 15 minutes here on 90.9 WBUR, WBUR's Ali Jarmanning has the story on the reactions of loved ones of people who donated their bodies to Harvard Medical School. The morgue manager at Harvard Medical School is accused of stealing and selling body parts. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Moonbox Productions, presenting the Boston New Works Festival, June 22nd through 25th, a weekend-long festival celebrating new original plays by local playwrights at the Calderwood Pavilion and the Boston Center for the Arts. Tickets at bostontheaterscene.org. And Merrimack College, offering online and on-campus master's in education programs and licensures for teachers. Learn more at online.merrimack.edu. I'm Windsor Johnston with these headlines. President Biden will hold a campaign event in Philadelphia today. He's expected to make another push for his economic agenda during a rally with union workers. He's also scheduled to tour a section of Interstate 95 that collapsed in the city last weekend. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is heading to China this weekend. Speaking ahead of the trip, Blinken said the two nations need to establish better lines of communication and act responsibly toward each other. Sections of the online discussion app Reddit remain dark today. It's part of a protest by users over the company's plan to begin charging some third-party apps for data access. I'm Windsor Johnston, NPR News in Washington. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Linda Moodbell Learning Centers, instruction for students to catch up or get ahead, live online or in-person summer programs for reading, comprehension, and math. lindamoodbell.com slash NPR. From Hint, maker of fruit-infused water with no sugar or diet sweeteners, available in more than 25 flavors, including watermelon and pineapple in stores or delivered from hintwater.com. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Don Gagne. North Carolina's presidential primary is still nine months away, but that's early enough to feel like the campaign is already in full swing. Well, hello, North Carolina. Hello, North Carolina. It's great to be back in North Carolina, a very special place. Those voices are former Vice President Mike Pence, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, and former President Donald Trump, all speaking at North Carolina's GOP convention in Greensboro last week. Trump called for a manufacturing revival in the state, and both Pence and DeSantis promised to reverse the recent Defense Department decision to rename certain military bases. Here's DeSantis. And I also look forward to, uh, as president, restoring the name of Fort Bragg to our great military base in Fayetteville, North Carolina. In the halls after the speeches, Republicans seemed energized and ready. Millard Bond was wearing a red, white, and blue T-shirt that read, If you don't like Trump, then you probably won't like me, and I'm okay with that. The crap that the Democratic Party is doing to Trump to keep him from getting reelected 
is all that possibility that they could fix it so he couldn't get reelected. And that's all it is, is a, a battle to keep him out of office. Is that a real concern? Absolutely. That it'll be fixed. Absolutely. It's, uh, they did it before. They'll damn sure try it again. Charlene Hogue is a GOP delegate who supports Trump. She's convinced a Democratic nominee cannot win the state in 2024. This is a red state. We have a supermajority in the uh, state Senate. It's veto-proof now since the latest Democrat joined our ranks. But So you disagree with the notion that if Democrats work harder and turn people out in rural areas, they can flip this state? I do not believe that it's going to happen. We have people coming over to our side in droves. But the picture is a lot more complex. North Carolina is a state moving in two directions. Republicans have won all but one presidential race here since Jimmy Carter. That was the first Obama win in 2008. Still, Biden lost the state by less than 100,000 votes in 2020. 74,000 is what he lost by in 2020, a number that haunts me. Anderson Clayton is the brand new Democratic Party chair in North Carolina. It's that juxtaposition she has to find a way to overcome. Because Republicans have a super majority in the state legislature after a Democratic state representative from outside Charlotte switched parties. But the state also has a Democratic governor, and North Carolina sends seven Democrats and seven Republicans to the U.S. House. We don't have a messaging problem, we got a showing up problem, and Democrats have just not done it for a while. We met Clayton at a coffee shop in Rocky Mount, about an hour east of the state capitol in Raleigh. The 25-year-old comes from Person County, a mostly rural area north of the Research Triangle, and sees rural outreach as the core of Democrats' strategy this cycle. What about issues like abortion? Uh, we've seen what a statewide ballot initiative did in a place like Michigan, where Democrats used it to drive turnout. They're scared of it. Republicans are scared of Democrats on the issue of choice because they know that it is important and that you know majority of our state, even Republican women, right, are in favor of keeping the right to their own bodies. Most people would be, in my opinion. In a large portion of legislative districts, Democrats didn't even have a candidate on the ballot. Yes, sir. We left 44 seats uncontested last cycle across the House and the Senate, the most that we've ever left in state history, uncontested. Are you going to field candidates everywhere this time? I absolutely am going to try to, yes. I want to make sure that we've got somebody to run in every county to step up and run for state house or state senate this cycle that can be called at the drop of a hat because that's probably what we're going to have to go through again. Republicans are redrawing our state house, senate, and congressional maps, unfortunately, right now, too. In some of those places, in a lot of those places, you're asking somebody to be a sacrificial lamb. I'm asking them to be a champion of the Democratic message in a rural community that right now needs to hear it. And you know what? I think I would do that any day of my life. I know there are rural people out there right now that are angry at not having a choice because democracy is not democracy without choices. If you do get them on the ballot uh, and they still lose 60 to 40 or 65 to 35, your hope is that that also means others on the ballot pick up a vote yeah. here and there. We're looking at the bigger picture this and year. And it helps Joe Biden, maybe, county by county by county, adding to his total in the state. Yeah, absolutely. And we take up that challenge. That's Cassandra Conover, 
chair of the Nash County Democratic Party, who is sitting in on our conversation. We realized that, first of all, we got to know our neighborhoods because we have people in those neighborhoods who feel like they don't matter. Democrat, unaffiliate, they feel like they don't matter. What's been the hardest part? The hardest part is getting people to realize that we care. There's a large group of unaffiliated that says, I want to care about the candidate. I'm scared to pick a party. So we're going out as Democrats and we're saying, look, we care about you. We are inclusive. We are fighting for you. We know your name. We're showing up. What's happening right now? So right now, everybody's doing a strategic plan. So we miss nobody, that we have that messaging, and we're going out and we're knocking on doors. You're canvassing already. We're canvassing already. What's the pitch at this point? Hello, how are you? You got a few minutes to talk? Just want to let you know we care. What would you like for us to address? Okay. There are people out there that want to know that they matter. What misconceptions do they have about what Democrats, who Democrats are today? They don't know what Democrats are today because they don't know what it means to be a Democrat. They're trying to live today. Mm -hmm. What will impact my paycheck right now? Whoever will make the biggest impact on my paycheck, that's who I like. We've got a bad brand, and like it, we're not going to be able to, to combat that within just a cycle. Like That's a rebuild, especially in rural North Carolina, you know? We tested their message in the community of Butner, about a half-hour drive north of Raleigh. We found people in a park setting up for a town party, alive after five. Tracy Meadows is a restaurant manager in her 50s. She lives in Stem, North Carolina. And she hasn't been paying much attention to presidential politics, but says she supports Biden. She says for Democrats to perform better in communities like hers, they would need... A lot of outreach. Definitely would do it. You definitely can't sit still and not do it. You have to get out there and get the word out there. What, what would it take? What kind of outreach might work? A lot of advertisement, a lot of communication. That's a couple of them. Maybe setting up a county office or something like that. That definitely will help. But as the band began to warm up nearby, we met Randy Perry. He's a Trump supporter in his 70s and thinks Democrats have lost too much trust in rural parts of the state. They've hurt themselves so bad, it'll take an awful long time to get an improvement out of people that don't like them. How have they hurt themselves? Giveaway programs. It's just everything's like People don't want to work. They just give it to them, you know. Hell, I worked all my life. You know? Is there anything a Democrat can say that can sway people, sway Republican voters, or or maybe even just undecided voters who are well, out there, here? There may be some that can sway. They can't sway me. I'm through with them. And I'm a registered Democrat. You're talking to a registered Democrat. Perry's vote is not up for grabs, even if the Democrats come knocking on his door, campaign flyers in hand. And now it's time for sports. The latest from the U.S. Open, the Oakland A's close in on Las Vegas and a cycling scandal in Italy. 
Michelle Steele of ESPN joins us now. Good morning, Michelle. Good morning, Don. So let's start with golf. The U.S. Open is underway in Los Angeles. It's the first tournament since the PGA and the Saudi-backed Live Golf Tour announced their controversial merger. Where do things stand after two rounds? Bring us up to date. Yeah, headed into today, Don, there's a lot of talk at the Los Angeles Country Club about Ricky Fowler at the top of the leaderboard. Through 36 holes, he's birdied 18 of them. That's really, really good. That's the most birdies at the halfway point of a major in the last 30 years. Now, if you're familiar with Fowler, you know he was once ranked top five in the world, but you know, his game has really slumped over the last couple of years or so. So, you know, it would really be something to see him win his first major at age 34, Don, but a lot of guys in the hunt this weekend. Okay, uh, I'm interested in what the atmosphere is like for the players. Any tensions Mm -hmm. among those? I mean, some had stayed with the PGA, some went to the LIV, then with Liv, now now this merger happens and here we are. (laughs) Sure, you know what, just a month ago, uh, the PGA Championship, we saw live golfers like Bryson DeChambeau and Brooks Kepka. They were being booed. Uh, DeChambeau says it's a bit more comfortable now at the U.S. Open than before. He says it's a good thing for the game of golf, but you know what? There is a lot to sort out on a very complicated deal between Liv and the PGA. Let's not forget, they were sworn enemies until last week. Exactly. So, Don, yeah, we'll see if this holds. Let's turn to baseball. The Oakland A's relocation drama continues. Fans in the Bay Area are really pulling out all the stops to try, try, try to keep the team in Oakland. But the state of Nevada is making a big push to lure the team to where else? Las Vegas. How likely (laughs) is the team to relocate? Yeah, those bright lights are attracting a lot of teams right now. But if you're a baseball fan, it's really hard to imagine the A's anywhere but their home of the last 55 years, Oakland. Uh, but that team did clear a big hurdle this week after the governor, you mentioned it, signed a bill making $380 million of Nevada public funds available to a major league team. Obviously, big question, where would the money go? Well, if the A's managed to get to Vegas, the money would go to team owner John Fisher. He's the son of the founders of clothing retailer Gap. He has a net worth north of $2 billion. And as you can imagine, I spoke to some fans this week. They are devastated at the prospect. And despite a roster that's been decimated by cuts and trades done, it's hard to find anyone recognizable on this team. They packed the stadium, the fans did, to show that they love this team. Despite its struggles, many of them wore shirts that said sell on the front. Now, baseball commissioner Rob Manfred was asked about that display this week and he appeared to kind of kick those fans when they were down saying sarcastically it was great to see an almost average crowd in the facility for one night and don you can imagine that didn't go over too well in Uh, in oakland they called it a reverse boycott um let's yeah 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 they did most fans stay away when the team isn't doing too well they're in last place in the division they did just the opposite just to show that it's not the fans' fault that they're having attendance issues. They want to see more investment in the team. And we have one more thing, Uh, uh, cycling. The under-23 Giro d'Italia, one of the world's most prestigious cycling events. I'm shocked to hear that there's cheating, but it's a different kind of cheating. Tell us about it. (laughs) 
Yeah, here's some news you can use this morning, Don. If you are in a bicycle race, you cannot hold on to cars and expect to win. <laughs> uh, but that's what happened. 31 cyclists DQ'd, caught on video, holding on to the back of cars and motorbikes. Now, in their defense, they were on a climb, and I'm sure it was really hard. But <laughs> you can't do that. The race crowns a winner tomorrow, who presumably, Don, did not hitch a ride from anyone Else. But it makes those hills so much easier. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so much easier. <laughs> Michelle Steele of ESPN, thank you very much for joining us. You bet. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. Thanks for spending part of your morning with 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody. Loved ones of people who donated their bodies to Harvard Medical School say they are horrified and furious after the morgue manager was accused this week of stealing and selling body parts. WBUR's Ali Jarmanning spoke with some of those family members about how they're coping. Laura St. Georgie's mom, Gwen, spent her working years as a research technician immersed in science. I think if she had been born in a different time um, and had different support, she probably would have gotten a Ph.D. and run her own lab. So it wasn't really a surprise when her mom said she planned to send her body to Harvard Medical School after her death. That wish was fulfilled in January 2017 when Gwen St. Georgie died at 87. It was really important to her to to donate her body to science and to students and to be knowing that, you know, even to the end, she could contribute to science. St. Georgie felt at peace with her mother's death and that decision. Then came this week. News broke that the morgue's longtime manager, Cedric Lodge, and his wife, Denise, allegedly sold off body parts, skin, brains, bones, from the bodies of donors. Prosecutors say Lodge even allowed potential customers into the morgue to pick out which parts they wanted. St. Georgie is horrified. And I can just, you know, like these bodies just lying there completely vulnerable. Even after death, that she could be dehumanized is appalling. She's still waiting on a response from Harvard about whether her mother's body was one of those allegedly stolen by Lodge. Harvard set up a hotline and sent out letters to families of people who donated their bodies to the program. Harvard Medical School hasn't said how many people it's reached out to or how many bodies were affected by the alleged thefts. I am angry at the medical school. What I'd really be looking for is what are they going to do differently to prevent this from happening again. Already, one person has filed a lawsuit against Harvard over the alleged mishandling of his mother's remains. Others are still grappling with the allegations. This is going to cause 
unimaginable grief for many families out there. Matthew Wilgo's dad, Henry, had his body sent to Harvard after he died in 2021. It was just always one of his, his dreams. He never wanted to be a burden on anybody. Wilgo got a letter from Harvard this week saying the school doesn't think his dad's body was one of those prosecutors say was picked apart and sold. But it's still unsettling. He's thinking about all the other people out there learning their loved ones' bodies may have been mistreated. I, I just can't imagine getting that letter because that's horrific. It's just, it's despicable. St. Georgie wonders how she'll tell her teenage children about what happened at Harvard. She's trying to keep her focus on the happy memories of their gran. Her mom's loud and enthusiastic laugh, her love of the ocean, the time she spent perfecting her fudge recipe. Fundamentally, this person violated my mother's dying wish. She wanted to make one last contribution to science, and and they defiled that. Her mother's choice, which for so long had been a comfort, now feels like a nightmare. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Allie Jarmanning. An earlier version of this story contained a mispronunciation of a name, and we regret the error. Taking a look at other news this morning, the state of Massachusetts has secured a hotel site to house migrant families arriving at Boston Medical Center looking for shelter. State officials say more and more immigrant families are coming to Boston without a place to stay. Some have been going to hospital emergency rooms. State officials say they place people in hotels until space opens in the state-run family shelter system. Boston Medical Center says between 30 and 60 unhoused people are still staying in BMC lobbies every night. A spokesperson for the Suffolk County District Attorney's Office says an official in that office has been placed on administrative leave. An investigation is underway into alleged anti-Semitic comments made by the office's director of community engagement. Trucy Allah is accused of making the comments on social media and in a podcast. The Red Sox are set to play the Yankees again at Fenway tonight. Last night, the Sox beat the Yankees 15-5. to Tonight at Gillette, the Revs host Orlando City. It's 64 degrees in Boston. Showers today, a chance of thunderstorms. Temperatures in the 60s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson. Top-ranked in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report, Babson's MBA prepares you to tackle global challenges. Babson.edu slash MBA. And the lyric stage with Rooted, an offbeat comedy where two sisters and a treehouse accidentally start a cult. Through June 25th, lyricstage.com. The Electronic Registration Information Center, known as ERIC, is a system states can use to prevent voter fraud. Until recently, it was really popular with officials from both parties. It is one of the best fraud-fighting tools that we have. We're going to continue to use it. So why have secretaries of state in Ohio and several other red states abandoned the system? I'm Asma Khalid. That story on the next All Things Considered from NPR News. Today at 5 on 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com NPR. 
From Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Don Gagne, in for Scott Simon. Dead men do tell tales. You just have to listen. In the early 1990s, a newly sober Barbara Butcher began her career as a death investigator, or medico-legal examiner, in Manhattan. She was the first woman to hold the job for longer than just a few months. She stayed for decades, investigating accidental deaths, gruesome murders, naturals, suicides, and identifying bodies after 9-11. Difficult work, which we'll talk about in the context of her new memoir, What the Dead Know. The book is gritty, at times funny, even beautiful. Barbara Butcher joins me now. Hello. Hey, Don. Thank you. So I want to start with your name. You say you have heard them all. (laughs) What is the best joke about someone with your last name in your line of work? Well, there were often times when I brought students or interns or medical residents with me on, uh, on investigations. And at one time, I had a, a student named John Slaughter. So we got to pull up to the scene, walk up to the police and say, Butcher and Slaughter from the ME, what do you got, boys? <laughs> and, and they liked it. The cops, they loved that name. Butcher's here, Butcher's here. And they, they loved to say Dr. Butcher. They knew I'm, I'm not a doctor, but it just sounds so good. Many of us have watched television shows, Law and Order, CSI, Bones, uh, Quincy from my youth. Uh, so we might think we know what your job is, but what actually is the job of a death investigator? When you think about the medical examiner or coroner, people tend to think in terms of autopsy. And an autopsy gives you the cause of death gunshot wound, stab wound, uh, myocardial infarction, but it doesn't give you the manner of death. Manner of death is homicide, suicide, accident, or natural. And you determine that by seeing the context in which the death occurs. Someone has to go to the scene. So medical legal death investigators like me would go to the scene and work with the police to investigate the death in its setting. If I, for instance, walked into uh, the particular case I'm thinking about, I was told it was a homicide. It was on the Upper West Side. And I walked in, and sure enough, there was a guy at the bottom of the stairs who stunk like hell of alcohol. And he had a nice little bullet hole right in the center of his head. And since he was in a a tenement-style building, he was at the foot of the stairs, but next to him was the hallway that led out back to the alleyway. And that hallway was full of 22 caliber shell casings. Hmm, what do you know? Cops said, yeah, this looks like a pretty easy one, Barbara, right? 22 caliber, nice small hole in his head. It's a homicide. But then I noticed that there was something unusual about that bullet mark. It didn't have the abrasion ring that a bullet hole normally has. It was kind of um, stellate. It was almost lacerated, like split. Then I noticed that 
Right in front of the guy at the foot of the stairs was a wall that came to a sharp point at the corner. And it had that stone molding that you see sometimes in old tenement buildings. Mm -hmm. And on it was a little bit of blood. Looks more to me as if this very drunk guy has fallen down the stairs head first and hit that point on the wall, making that hole in his head. But wait a minute, Barbara, says the cops. What about all these shell casings? We go out in the backyard in the alleyway. The door is open, and there's a target out there. Turns out this tenement was used by kids who shot 22 pistols from the hallway out the back door to the alley and hit targets. It had nothing to do with his death whatsoever. So this supposed homicide hmm. turned out to be just another accident. A number of times in the book, you say you had the best job in the world. That might surprise some listeners. Convince us. Well, it's not just about seeing the dead, which is interesting enough in and of itself, because if you're a curious person, it's so much fun to figure out how a thing happened. But more than that was I got to see how people died, of course, but I also got to see how they lived which was really interesting. So I would be in places like uh, the tunnels under the Amtrak. Uh, there are caves off those abandoned tunnels, and people live in them, and they actually furnish them, which is so interesting to me. And then from there, I'd go to a, a Fifth Avenue duplex, a penthouse in the sky, surrounded by true, real Impressionist paintings old master's paintings. I'd never seen such a thing in my life. There's a scene early on in the book where you go to the New York City medical examiner's office, and there's a Latin inscription on the wall that is particularly striking. The translation is, uh, I'll, I'll read it, let conversation cease and laughter flee, for this is the place where death delights to help the living. Why did you include that detail, and what does that phrase mean to you? It's not just about the dead people. We're, that, we're not there working for the dead. We're working for their families. The job has not just a justice component, but also a preventive program, a public health function. For instance, it was medical examiners who noticed that people or children were falling out of windows at a really bad rate. And someone came up with the idea of uh, window guards, and that became the law. It was the data from medical examiners on car crashes, why so many chest injuries, and that started people thinking about seat belts. So we actually save lives too. Near the end of the book, the story takes a turn. And, and I confess, as I was reading it, I didn't really have you know specific dates in my head, like where we are on the calendar. Literally, I turn the page to the next chapter, and it's September 11th, 2001. I want you to talk about that day and what it was like for the people who do the job you do. Um, well, of course, it was, it was awful. It was terrifying. I've heard the expression before, um, one death is a tragedy. A thousand deaths is a statistic. So 
okay, that's horrifying, but how do I investigate this? How do I recover the bodies? How do I gather the evidence? It's one by one. It's just too much to process in, in your mind anyway. It's absolutely too much to process. But then here comes something that pulls you right back down to earth. And that is that walking through that rubble, looking for body parts, and they were quite small, I would see something like a desk calendar with a note on it, lunch with Jim, or a, a, a golf ball from a hole in one. It's in a little stand with a pen or the picture of, of a kid's graduation from kindergarten. Suddenly it's one person and each single remain that we found represented a, a life, a family, a universe, if you will, a story. Then that becomes overwhelming and there are no statistics. There's just death. Your career ended suddenly uh, with a change in administrations in New York City. If not for that, do you think you'd still be doing this job? I'd probably be dead. Really? I think the job was destroying me, and I was not completely aware of it. In order to do the job, you have to be very detached. You have to cut off your emotions while you're in the scene so that you can do your work appropriately. But I soon learned that you can't turn off one emotion or two. It's either on or off. Either you feel things or you don't. And I had reached a spot in my emotional life where I had turned off everything. Couldn't feel it. Couldn't feel love. Couldn't feel joy. All I could feel was a sense of purpose. This is my job. This is who I am. This is what I have to do. Why? Because I can. And most people can't. And then 9-11 happened, and now it's like, oh, I couldn't stand one death at a time? It threw me into a new, um, a, a new emotional state that I can't really identify for you still because it's, it's too hard to process. And one of the things that I hope this book does is let people know what it's like to be a first responder, what it does to you emotionally, physically. You can't see trauma and, and death and despair every single day without being adversely affected. It's time to do something about that if we want people to continue to do this work for us. I hope that my colleagues reading this book will say, oh, maybe I should think about talking to somebody. Barbara Butcher is the author of What the Dead Know, Learning About Life as a New York City Death Investigator. Barbara, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Don. It's been a pleasure. It's a question that has scrambled our brains for years. What came first, the chicken or the egg? Well, a team of scientists at the University of Bristol in England thinks it has cracked the code. One of those researchers is Michael Benton. He's a professor at the university's School of Earth Sciences, and he joins us now. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Mild apologies for the puns. <laughs> there, you've yeah, heard them all, all, I'm sure. Uh, not at all. Uh, we are all itching to know 
Was it the chicken or the egg? What did you find? Yeah, well, the, the quick answer is uh, the egg because the, the chicken is just one of many birds. And of course, all birds, as we well know, lay an egg with a hard shell. So if you're familiar with an, your breakfast egg, that's pretty much the same for all birds. And therefore, that's likely to be the egg that was laid by the very first bird all the way back in time. So one quick answer is the egg comes first. However, our research suggests that actually, if you go deeper in time, that's not the whole story. Okay, let's let's dive into the whole story, though. I mean, your initial answer was the egg, but then you said, wait yes. a minute, what, what's the wait a minute part? Many listeners may be aware of the fact that we know of um, eggs from dinosaurs. There are many nests of football-sized eggs. But a few years ago, some colleagues pointed out that the first dinosaurs very likely produced parchment-shelled eggs. Those are soft-shelled eggs. And the secret is something that's been known to lizard aficionados for a long time, which is that many of them possess a, a, an ability to retain the embryos inside. So the mother holds the young uh, and releases them at a particular point. This is called extended embryo retention, EER. What we discovered is that property of extended embryo retention goes all the way back to the start of the reptiles. So it was not the hard-shelled egg, it was extended embryo retention that they were doing. So, so help me put this in the simplest terms possible. We know hard-shell eggs, we even know softer-shell eggs, where it's more like a membrane, but you're saying these eggs themselves weren't always there as part of the birth or as part of the protection of yeah. the embryo. So they evolved as well. So I think the easiest way to contrast it is that um, the standard textbook story is that the first reptile was hugely successful because it laid a hard-shelled egg like a chicken egg and that acted as a private pond. This is a phrase people have often used, a private pond, contrasting with the amphibians that came before. We think of frogs and, and salamanders. They lay their eggs in water. They, they tend to abandon them, and the young grow up like little fishy things in the water, and then they eventually leave, which is the reason that amphibians have to stay close to water. So the whole business in the story of the evolution of life was sometime in the Carboniferous, 300 million years ago, some of the earliest reptiles got this ability to get away from the water and therefore to conquer the whole of the landscape. Wrong. It wasn't the private pond. It was the extended embryo retention and live birth. That seems to be the, the primitive state for reptiles. Why are these findings important? I think it's important because um, the origin of reptiles and then the later origin of dinosaurs and birds and mammals really changed the world. You know, we look around the landscape and everywhere you look, you see birds and, and mammals. And, you know, one way or another, it's not just us saying that we're important. Therefore, we pay attention to these creatures. Do you think the old expression... What came first, chicken or the egg, will go away? It feels like one of those things that's <laughs> no, going to persist. I don't think so. It's, it's a, a classic uh, pub quiz question. So whether it's like the why did the chicken cross the road, I've got no idea. But 
I expect people will keep asking and keep answering it in different ways. That was my next question, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I can't answer. <laughs> All right. Michael Benton is a professor at the University of Bristol's School of Earth Sciences. Thank you for being with us and for explaining all this. Thank you very much. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Don Gagne, in for Scott Simon. Have a great weekend. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the NPR Wine Club, where members can explore wines from around the world with stories behind each one and bottles inspired by favorite NPR shows. Available to adults 21 or older nprwineclub.org. And from Staples, with supplies to get business done no matter where it gets done, from ink and toner cartridges to technology like laptops and networking accessories. More at Staples stores or staples.com. Next at 10 o'clock, it's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me here on 90.9 WBUR. Good morning, I'm Sharon Brody. And keep in mind, at the beach or at the park, on a walk or at your desk, the WBUR app makes it easy to tap and listen wherever the season takes you. Download the WBUR app today. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Museum of Science. Visit mazes and brain games and challenge the relationship between the mind and eye in a richly interactive experience for all ages. Tickets at mos.org. And Catch Light Painting, committed to enhancing new and historic homes with a thoughtful approach to interior and exterior painting. More at catchlightpainting.com. The city of Milwaukee has an ambitious climate plan to cut its carbon emissions. There's a lot of different ways that climate change is affecting us, even here in the Midwest. We've got to act. We've waited way too long. Hundreds of U.S. cities have similar plans, and very few have met their goals. Why not? Is there a better way for cities to tackle climate change? I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. That's On Point Monday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. I'm Morning Edition host Rupa Shanoi, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.